It's time for Drive-By Theology with Dr. Steve Lawson and Todd Friel. You, you have just a, just a little bit of spittle on your chin. Welcome to Lecture 31 of Drive-By Theology. I do it too when I nap, so don't worry about a thing. You're fine. It didn't make it all the way to your button-down shirt, which is crisply pressed. You must be a high-starch kind of guy. No, this is no starch. No. Oh, yeah. This is a non-iron shirt. Wow, I wish this were drive-by ironing tips, but it's drive-by theology. Moving now toward ecclesiology, and perhaps the most important thing that we want to remember in the theology of the church is who is its foundation, Jesus Christ, her Lord. As we study church theology, let's remember this is not about a building It's not even really about us per se. It is about the one to whom the church is married, the groom, Jesus Christ. Yes, we are the bride of Christ. We are those for whom Christ has died. We are those who are indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are those who proclaim the word of Christ. We extend the kingdom of Christ, and we are glory-bound to the presence of Christ. Let us define the church. It's not a zip code. It's not an address. It is the assembly of the true and living God gathered into one people by his work of redemption in Jesus Christ. And might I add, because he loves the church, Ephesians 5.25, and the price that he paid for his church, his own blood, Acts twenty twenty eight. The church is the assembling of the true and living God. When we come together, whether it's in a fancy building, a multi-purpose facility, or out in a field, the gathering of the saints is the church. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the term ekklesia is used to translate the Hebrew term that refers to the gathered people of God. It's not an accident that the writers of the New Testament, whose Bible was the Septuagint, chose this term to refer to the gathered people of Jesus Christ. A called-out group, a separated group, because we are in union with Jesus Christ. But to be clear, even though the term ekklesia was the Greek word For a Hebrew word of assembling, the church, the term that we know from the New Testament, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, is an exclusively New Testament creation. Yes, birthed on the day of Pentecost. So we understand that the church is a new creation. Yes, exactly. The church is one—I'm just going to say it instead of sing it. The church is one foundation— is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ, and it is a new creation. And we actually see the term used by Jesus himself in Matthew 18, 17, talking about church discipline. You know, we used to do that in churches. I don't know if you remember that. Not so much anymore. Matthew eighteen seventeen. if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So Jesus actually used the term church first. Now, with that in mind, let us take a look at the attributes of the church. There are four, one, holy, universal, apostolic. 
one at a time, the unity of the church. There is one church. Where do we get that idea? That is from Ephesians 1, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Definite article, the. And the church only has one Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. So when we come into this church, your socioeconomic status, the color of your skin, your gender, any of those issues are erased because we are one church, one called out group, one body in unity. Not only do we have one head and one spirit, but we have one foundation who is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The implications for this are big. If you have a tendency to squabble at church, to be cliquish in churches, which Paul warned about in 1 Corinthians, really the thrust of that entire letter, it should go away recognizing all of the Bible verses that say the church is one. Like Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. That is a unity verse that just should cause us to stop an awful lot of the... Yes. In John ten sixteen, Jesus spoke of one flock with one shepherd. In Galatians 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And keeping that unity is actually incumbent upon us. We are commanded in Romans fifteen five. May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He empowers us, but it is certainly incumbent upon us to pursue unity, not fighting, not squabbling, not I'm of MacArthur, you're of Sproul. No, we are the church and we are in unity. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, says Ephesians 4.3. Philippians 2.2, 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In John chapter 17, verse 20 and following, Jesus prayed this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. We are commanded to be in unity, but we kind of biff it on that because we fail to understand what unity means. For starters, it's not uniformity. Christians can take different shapes, sizes, and even expressions as long as they're orthodox. Unity is not merely invisible 
spiritual unity. Unity is not the same thing as anti-denominationalism or non-denominationalism. I think denominations are actually a gift from God so that different backgrounds, different preferences, different styles of worship can be enjoyed by those people. But if you sit in high church and a true believer sits in a more casual church, we still have unity. Furthermore, the attributes of the church, it is a holy thing. 1 Peter 2, nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lots of verses that talk about the sanctity of the church. John 17, 15 through 19, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. The church is holy, not because we behave perfectly, but because the church is the assembling of the saints who have been washed, who have been cleansed by Jesus. So we need to remember the church is holy only because it has been sanctified by Jesus. And Ephesians 5 tells us really clearly that husbands are supposed to love their wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory without spot or wrinkle, but that she would be holy and blameless. The church is called to holiness. 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 7, 1 clearly states this. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. And then Ephesians four twenty four, which says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. From the Confession, 26.3, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have degenerated so much that they have ceased to be churches of Christ and have become synagogues of Satan. No church is perfect, but a church, if it has wandered away from the truth, if it is not behaving like a church, it is no longer the bride of Jesus Christ. It is actually the bride of Satan. The church is sanctified, therefore, only because it is sanctified by Jesus and not by us. The third attribute, the church is small c Catholic. What's the difference between small c and big c? Well, the big c would refer to the Roman Catholic Church. Small c refers to the true church. And it means? Universal. So it's all over. It's not just in America, just you're inclined to think. It's not just the local church or a regional church or even a national church. It is universal, global. Acts 1.8, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. So you're going to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus wants his church established, not just in the nation of Israel, but everywhere. Romans 10, 18, that is why we go. Colossians 1, 23, the gospel you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So we see that the church is universal, small c, Catholic, and it also transcends all of our, well, let's be honest, petty differences all of our economic and sociological differences as well. So ethnically, there is no Jew, no Greek, Galatians 3.28, male or female. We are all universally the church, and it doesn't matter how much money that you have. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, not just a certain level, not just a certain people, because the church is universal. 
Colossians 3 verse 11 says the same, neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free man, but all in Christ are one. And finally, the attribute of the church, it is apostolic. Ephesians 2.20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When it says that it's, it's based on the apostles, I can get Jesus being the cornerstone. What do you mean it's built on the apostles? Well, the apostles spoke with the authority of Christ himself, and they spoke the very words that Christ had taught them. So in reality, the foundation is really Christ, but it is spoken through the apostles and prophets okay, so and recorded in Scripture. So it's not them. We don't worship them. They don't have a role. It's their teachings about Jesus. Exactly. That's what it says in Acts 2.42, John 17.20, and Galatians 1.6-9. through 9. John sixteen thirteen. but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Multiple verses, John 14, 26, 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, the foundation of the apostles are the teachings of the apostles, which are based on Jesus, which were given by the Holy Spirit. Let us now take a look at the forms of the church, visible and invisible, local, universal, militant, and triumphant, starting with visible and invisible. What are those two forms? The visible church is the church as we see it. We see people who profess Christian faith and take part in baptism in the Lord's Supper, but the invisible church is the church as God sees it. That is, the Lord knows those who are His and who are true believers. They more than just profess the faith, they possess the faith. Now, this might punch somebody right in the nose. You can be a part of the visible church without being a part of the invisible church. That's true. There are always tares sown among the wheat. And this one might sting even more. You cannot be a part of the invisible church without being a part of a visible church. That is true. It is assumed that every believer in Christ will be a a part and a member of a local body of believers. So should it be that you are not presently a member of a local congregation because it's hard to find a good church out there? We both get that. Nevertheless, you need to find the best local church you can and join it. It is an expression that you are a member of the invisible church. Let this motivate you to cease with the excuses and become a member, not a regular attender of the visible church. John 19, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. When you're a secret believer, you got problems. You need to come out of the closet and become a member of the local church. Matthew 10:32. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my father. Because if you are not a member of a local church, you can't obey the command to take and eat. You can't obey the command to be baptized. It is crucial that you become a member of a visible church if indeed you are a member of the invisible church. The distinction between the invisible and the visible church was a very important doctrine during the days of the Reformation. This was a particularly important doctrine for the Reformers in that the Roman Catholic Church declared that the church was only visible. 
That is, only the visible organization of the Church of Rome in unbroken succession from the apostles constitutes the true church. And the Bible says something different. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having the seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Hebrews 12.23, To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, very, very clear. There can be a big group of people that claim to be Christian, but only God knows those who are his. Invisible church are the true believers. Visible, unfortunately, can be a gathering of wheat and tares. Here's another verse that must be heard. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice righteousness. Gulp. Two other forms of the church would be local and universal. And we see this distinction made in the Bible. We just heard about the universal church. God knows those who are his, the invisible church. But all throughout the New Testament, we hear about local, individual, named churches. 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen, the churches of Asia greet you. So there's all these churches out there. That's the church universal. But to you, you're the local church. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, Acts nine thirty one. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. So all of the churches together would be the universal church. But then we hear about local churches like the church in Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Caesarea, Ephesus, Rome, on and on. Individual churches are the local church. All of the churches put together are the universal church. And now two other terms that we tend to forget about these days, the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant is the church that is fighting the good fight here upon the earth. We're winning elections. No, it, it is the fight against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. Uh, it is the fight for holiness and to advance the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It involves conflict and, and struggle and agony and, and sometimes even martyrdom as we labor to do God's work here upon the earth. Uh, the church triumphant. No, 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 not going to let you go that fast. All right. Church militant, mm-hmm. battling terms. Am I supposed to be pugnacious? No, no. You must speak the truth in love. If we do not have love, we're as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So we must have love, not only for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for the world as well. Our warfare is against Satan and his hosts. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, hold on. Now, I don't think you've got that verse right. I think, and where's the Democratic Party in there? <laughs> They're not mentioned. Okay, so the militancy of the church is not against different political groups. It is, it is, it is not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. This is a battle for souls. Yes, To win souls to Christ. Now, the church triumphant. The church triumphant is the church that is in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory in heaven. 
and they have entered into the fullness of the victory of Christ, one at the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, they, this is the church that has been crowned in heaven and who are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And if you are in union with Jesus Christ, someday you will be too. Uh, this was Lecture 31 of Drive-By Theology.